This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. I continued the turn and at the perch at 180 degrees, I was down to gear and flap operation speed and I dropped the gear and flaps and that's when the fire came. It was like a ferocious blowtorch. It was a moment of confusion, it was a moment of denial, and it was also had an element of pure terror. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Chuck Cook, who flies out of Minoka County, Minnesota. Chuck is a 35-plus-year general aviation pilot. He's got an instrument rating, a multi-engine rating, a seaplane rating, a rotary rating, and he's owned eight different aircraft through the years of his 3,500-plus hours of flying. Chuck's careful to remind us that over 10% of his total hours as instruction received He's a big believer in receiving good instruction. Chuck had one of the most horrific incidents that a pilot can imagine not too long ago in his T-28, a fire in the cockpit. Few things scare pilots more than fire in the cockpit. Chuck experienced this and survived it, and he's here to tell us his miraculous story. Chuck, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thank you, Richard. I'll uh, share the story of my uh, fire in the cockpit and crash landing of my T-28 and I'll give a brief summary of my hospitalization and recovery, and I'll offer some suggestions at the end regarding flight safety and fire protection. The date of my accident was August 23rd, 2018. I was in a formation flight with three others en route to a formation flyover event. We left Anoka, and we're en route to Rochester, Minnesota, only about a 30-minute flight when I had a generator failure light come on in the cockpit. Normally, this is quite uneventful. At that time, I elected to separate from the formation and returned to my home airport. After turning the airport towards home, I could smell something burning. It was very slight and very momentary. It dissipated within five or 10 seconds. I didn't know what it was, and I didn't give it much further thought, out of sight, out of mind. Tell you a little bit about the T-28. When you have a generator failure, it has a automatic load shed of the secondary battery bus. This is to preserve battery power for the cruise portion of flight. Let's talk about that a little bit. An automatic load shed, 
uh, from the secondary battery, from the secondary bus, meaning that when it's not operating at full power, it will automatically reduce the load that's on the battery, or could you just explain that a little bit more, what that means? Yes. When you have a generator failure, you have automatic load shut of the secondary battery bus, which disables non-essential items, electrical items, for the cruise portion of flight. Well, that's great. It does that automatically. I recently had a similar experience in a Navion I was helping ferry across the country, and when the alternator failed, we had to manually uh, reduce the electrical load to the minimum, and it sounds like the T-28 does some of that work for you. That is correct. Uh, this automatic load shed of the secondary bus disables, believe it or not, radio communication, canopy operation, speed brake operation, and landing gear operation. Okay, and the secondary bus, that implies that secondary means those non-essential. The, the primary bus would be your essential items, the secondary bus being your non-essential items, and those get shut off automatically. That's correct. Okay, great. Further explanation, the, the DC power switch in this cockpit has three positions. It has battery, it has a generator slash battery for normal flight, it has off, and it has battery only. And it is standard procedure in this aircraft when, if you have a generator failure, when you approach your airport of landing, you switch to battery only, and it re-energizes the secondary bus and gives you back radio communication, canopy, speed brake, and landing gear operation. Mm. Okay. When I had turned around, I was soon to be entering St. Paul Class D airspace and needed clearance for transition, so I went to battery only, received my clearance to transit the St. Paul Class D airspace and proceeded on to my home airport at Anoka, received ATIS, and clearance for the brake to land 1-8 at Anoka. For those not familiar with brake to land, it's a landing technique used by the military and by civilian formation pilots to recover a large group of aircraft in a short order without clogging up the airspace. So in essence, you're going to fly uh, straight up the runway at about 1,000 feet, and when you get to the approach end, you're going to, in essence, do a descending 360-degree turn until you uh, roll out on final and land on the runway. That's, that's the overhead brake, correct? That is correct. It's a steep 60-degree bank descending circle down to the threshold. Okay. In the T-28, the procedure is crossing the runway threshold at cruise speed, pulling power, banking 60 degrees, pulling 2 Gs, and dropping the speed brake. And you proceed halfway around the circle in level altitude and are reaching a beam the runway 180 degrees into the circle you're down to gear and flap operation speed, and you drop the gear and flaps, and then you continue the 60-degree bank and descent down to the threshold. That is what I did when I arrived at Anoka. I'm over the threshold of the runway. I pull power. I bank 60 degrees. I pull two Gs, and I drop the speed brake, and I immediately had thick billowing smoke entering the cockpit. Mm, right after you activated the speed brake. That's correct, and I... Open the cockpit canopy to vacate the smoke. I had to hold my head against the slipstream to keep from breathing the smoke in and to keep forward visibility. And I announced smoke in the cockpit to the tower. At this point, I was over the airport. I was too low to bail out. You can't abandon 8,600-pound aircraft with 160 gallons of 100-octane fuel over a populated area. I elected to keep the turn going and get the plane on the ground. 
and I made it about 90 degrees into the turn, and I was being sprayed heavily with a fluid, which at the time I thought was fuel. It was like being sprayed with a garden sprayer. It was even going up inside my face shield. I continued the turn, and at the perch at 180 degrees, I was down to gear and flap operation speed, and I dropped the gear and flaps, and that's when the fire came. It was like a ferocious blowtorch. It was coming up between the left sidewall of the interior of the cockpit and the left side of my seat bucket. There's about a two-inch gap, and it was probably 24 inches long, and it was shoulder height. It was a blowtorch. At this moment, it was a moment of confusion. It was a moment of denial, and it was also had an element of pure terror. My focus became very narrow. I knew I had to fly the airplane, land, and get out. I continued to fly the steep bank turn, leaning far right to stay out of the fire. About 90 degrees additional, while I'm in a base leg position, the flames started coming up between my legs, rising above my head, burning my hand as I held the stick. I continued to fly. I made it into short final, perhaps 100, 150 feet AGL. Now the flames are going up inside my face shield. I'm losing my eyesight. I'm losing my ability to control the airplane. I'm veering off course. I saw the runway end identifier markings in my peripheral vision on the right. I knew I could not complete the landing and rollout. I knew I was burning alive and needed to get the plane on the ground immediately. I instinctively pushed the stick forward and drove it in. To give some context to the crash, it was a very steep nose-down impact, a very violent crash, and the airplane really broke apart. The props separated, taking with it some of the engine casing and planetary gear set with it, and went off to the left. The engine separated, taking the motor mounts with it, went off to the right. The fuselage broke in half, right behind the rear cockpit. The tail separated, believe it or not, flipped forward and landed ahead of the rest of the wreckage, sitting upright facing backwards. The main wing separated as a whole. It tipped leading edge up, facing the direction of flight, and slammed against the tail, standing leading edge up. Both landing gear extended and undamaged, suggesting the landing gear did not take the brunt of the impact. The cockpit section of the fuselage from the firewall to the back of the rear cockpit landed upright on its belly, intact, also facing the direction of flight, and slammed against the wing. Obviously, I drove it in harder than necessary. I did the best I could under the circumstances, but it's hard for me to criticize because I did survive the impact. I woke up to silence, which was startling, actually. And again, to put it into context, this aircraft with 1,820 cubic inches and two-foot straight exhaust pipes unloading right in front of the cockpit creates 130 decibels of noise in the cockpit, equivalent to standing next to somebody running a chainsaw. So waking up to silence got my attention. I realized I survived. I have no memory of exiting the cockpit. An eyewitness driving by on a nearby highway said he saw the entire incident. He pulled over, he dialed 911, and when he looked up, he saw a man on the ground kicking his seat, trying to put the fire out on his shoes. I remember lying on the ground, seeing my feet on fire, kicking my feet, and also trying to roll over because the sheepskin liner on my parachute was also burning. When I had climbed out of the aircraft, the wing was missing, and I believe I fell, and that's when I broke my forearm in a compound fracture. I had collapsed about 5 or 10 feet from the cockpit, 
conscious, but probably going into shock. This Good Samaritan on the highway and another Good Samaritan from the highway slipped through the airport security fence and ran to my rescue. I asked later if they could have pulled me from the aircraft if they had to, and they stated no, it was already too engulfed in flames by the time they arrived. A line manager from the FBO also arrived at the scene, and together these three pulled me away from the wreckage. They pulled me a short distance, about 25 feet, and I heard an explosion, but by this time my eyes were not working. I talked to the lineman several months later, and he told me, yes, it was the left fuel tank. In his words, he said it exploded like commercial fireworks with shrapnel and gas and fire. He said where I was lying moments before was now fully engulfed in flames. They pulled me further away. I remember giving them my wife's name and phone number and asking them to call my wife. That's the last memory I have for two months. Regarding my hospitalization and recovery, I was airlifted by helicopter to Hennepin County Medical Burn Center in Minneapolis, where they kept me in an intensive care unit in a drug induced coma for two months. I was treated for second and third degree burns over 40% of my body. I had fourth degree burns on my right hand. While I was in a coma, they had to amputate a half inch off of each finger on this hand. And they also did 20 skin graft surgeries and numerous other procedures when I was in a coma. Over the course of time, after the hospital staff realized I was strong enough, they shared with me they didn't think I was going to live. After four months in the hospital, I went home, required extensive home care for another year. Since being released from the hospital, I've had five additional surgeries, and I probably have seven or eight more to go, mainly reconstructive treatments, nothing like what I've already been through. I've been in physical therapy since the date of the accidents, and I'm still going five days a week, and I'll have this for another year. All things considered, the violent crash and fire, the rescue from the crash site, my survival and recovery from the severe burns, it's understandable why the hospital staff refers to me as their miracle man. I share all of this medical information with you so you'll know the very serious nature of fire in the cockpit. Regarding the source of the fire, we may never know for sure. The cockpit section of the fuselage from the firewall to the back of the rear cockpit burned in its entirety into rubble and ash. I met with the MTSB inspector at the storage facility where they pulled out the wreckage. We found no fire penetration of the firewall, no fire damage or external damage to the engine-driven fuel pump or engine-driven hydraulic pump, and we determined the fire was not generated from the engine compartment. My speculation from what I have learned is the fire was fueled by hydraulic fluid under very high pressure it started under the cockpit floor, burned through the floorboard, and came up into the cockpit from under the pilot seat. Under the cockpit floor, there's an extensive network of hydraulic plumbing and an extensive network of electrical wiring and electrical actuators to operate the landing gear, speed brake, canopy, and flaps. When flying along in the clean configuration, gear and flaps up, this hydraulic system is in a bypass mode with no pressure. When I dropped the speed brake, the system pressurized to 1,650 PSI. That's when the smoke came into the cockpit and the spray of fluid occurred. When I dropped the gear, I believe an electrical actuator on the gear ignited the fire. Smoke was white, which is produced by oil, versus black smoke produced by fuel. 
My flight suit and helmet were returned to my son when I was in the hospital. Both are saturated heavily with an oily substance smelling of petroleum. A swatch of the flight suit has been sent to the NTSB. The NTSB inspector sent this to a Air Force laboratory for analysis to determine the exact content, and we have not heard the result yet. Again, I speculate a hydraulic line failed when pressurized, sprayed on something hot, causing the smoke and spray in the cockpit, an electrical spark from the landing gear actuated ignited the fire. I have several suggestions I'll pass on for flight safety. Please realize these are based on my experience of a fast onset of a very severe fire. Preparation and safety gear for all pilots. Know your emergency checklists. Take your POH home and study your emergency checklists. Have them available in the cockpit and use them if the situation allows. In my situation, everything came on so fast I couldn't let go of the stick in this steep bank configuration for landing close to the ground. Here's a big one. Most manufacturers list certain line items in the emergency procedures in bold. These are meant to be memorized for situations like mine when you don't have opportunity to consult your emergency checklist. Carry a portable fire extinguisher on board. I had two, one in each cockpit, but again, in my situation close to the ground in a steep bank, I couldn't let go of the stick to use this fire extinguisher. Another good one is to keep your shoulder harness and seatbelt tight and locked at all times during flight. In a catastrophic emergency, you won't think of this. My seatbelt and shoulder harness were always locked, and they saved my life. I went from 100 knots to zero in about 30 feet. I remember telling some of my airport friends, I was surprised I did not have damage to my torso from the severe impact. My wife overheard and corrected me. She said, yes, you didn't have internal injuries, but your torso in its entirety was black and blue. Another one, if you wear a helmet, install a quick release in the comm line. I had a quick release. With my burns and my compromised eyesight, and I'm sure I would not have remembered to unplug the headset, I'm glad I had the quick release. When I climbed out, it automatically released me, and I was not tethered to the cockpit. A little comment about my exit of the cockpit. I've been asked, am I sure I wasn't ejected because I don't remember getting out? And I'll just comment, I had a very substantial hooker harness restraint system that had a quick release. This quick release is common. It's a lever device in the center of the lap belt, and this lever lies flat against the lap belt and has a very secure detent holding it in place. It's designed so that you can suffer a severe impact and get shaken up, and it will not release. And yet, all it takes is the palm of your hand to flip that lever and everything releases. My left hand, the palm of my hand was not burnt because I was holding the throttle. I'm convinced that I was able to get myself out of the aircraft. Back to preparation and safety gear for warbird pilots, airshow pilots, and aerobatic pilots. If you wear a parachute, practice exiting the cockpit with the parachute attached. It's much harder than one realizes stepping up into the seat bucket and staying below the slipstream. I attribute my ability to get out to my many previous practices in the hangar and my rote memory. Another item, all of us warbirds wear fireproof Nomex flight suits, gloves, and a helmet. I did, and they saved my life. My burns, however, extended from the middle of my thighs 
to my feet and from the middle of my biceps down to my fingertips. At first, I thought perhaps the flames were going up my legs and my arm sleeves, but a nurse at the hospital told me I likely suffered thermal burns. The flames did not penetrate the fight suit, but the heat certainly did. Again, for context, this aircraft is very hot in flight. It has a big heater up front. Using my infrared heat gun, I found that the firewall right in front of my feet was 130 degrees like a radiant heater, plus you're in a greenhouse with that canopy. On a hot summer day, it's not uncommon to go for an hour flight and come down and be soaking wet. For this reason, many of us wear shorts and a t-shirt under the fireproof flight suit, as I was that day. The burns were thermal burns where I did not have secondary garments. Where I had shorts and t-shirt, I did not suffer burns. I'm recommending full-length garments under your flight suit. I'm also recommending fireproof Nomex high-top boots. I was wearing ankle-high leather work shoes. My ankles suffered severe burns. The stitching and laces burnt out of my right foot my right shoe and it opened up and my right foot suffered very severe burns. Last item I would recommend, particularly in Warbirds, installing a automatic fire suppression system, not only in the engine compartment, but below the floorboard if you have this network of hydraulic lines and electrical lines. A couple of comments about avoiding complacency and being prepared. If you suspect a fire is imminent, that is the time to prepare your mindset ahead of time as to what you will do if a fire breaks out. Fire in the cockpit is a moment of, like I said, denial, confusion, and terror, and it's a difficult time to think clearly. If you smell fuel or smell something burning, get your DC power off and land ASAP. If you have a generator failure, consider turning that DC power off in its entirety and landing it ASAP. If you wear a parachute, Consider opening the canopy and prepare to bail out. Climb to a bailout altitude if you have some distance to go and fly over rural landscape. If a fire should break out, depending on the intensity of fire, you have to stop the fire or get out. You cannot survive any length of time. In my 20 to 25 seconds of exposure, I was at the end of my human endurance and couldn't even finish the landing. If a fire breaks out, these are obvious items. Cut the mixture on the engine. Stop the engine-driven fuel pump and engine-driven hydraulic pump. Shut off the fuel valve and electric fuel pump. DC power off. Again, land ASAP. Have your mindset prepared ahead of time. In 2020 hindsight, I can think of several things I could have done. Obviously, I should have learned better fire protection. I was not fully prepared. At the first smell of something burning, I should have declared an emergency, announced my intention, Shut the DC power off and landed ASCP. I was complacent. At the start of the fire, I should have pulled the engine mixture off. In my case, this would have stopped the engine-driven hydraulic pump from feeding the fire. I may have significantly reduced my burns. But also, this would have significantly reduced my rate of descent, and I probably wouldn't have made it over the highway near the threshold of the runway, and I could have had other problems. It's hard to know but my mindset was not prepared. All of that said, in my case, who would have thought that a generator failure would result in a ferocious fire I experienced? It's a very rare occurrence.
Again, my suggestions are from my experience and my perspective. I offer these because I care about other pilots and passengers, and I don't want anyone to ever experience something like this. In the end, I must say I have a lot to be thankful for. I'm thankful for surviving and being alive, for my amazing recovery, the many people that helped participate in my survival. The many first responders, the Good Samaritans, the ambulance and helicopter crews, the extensive medical team with at Hennepin County Medical Center with their expertise in burns. Together, they truly saved my life. And I'm also thankful for my extensive support, especially my wife and family and my many friends. Thank you for listening. Be safe and remember, fly the airplane and keep a shiny side up. Thank you. Just an incredible story, Chuck. We're so uh, thankful that you survived it and grateful that you're willing to share your story and your lessons learned to all of us. And the immediate takeaway I have listening to you recount these events is, as you mentioned, to take it seriously and not get complacent. You can have things that you think are minor issues And it's better to overreact to those in terms of being very conservative in how you deal with them. The things that you mentioned, the ability to get out of your airplane and that seatbelt, comm cords, and canopy, can you do all that stuff under extreme duress in just seconds when you may have your vision blinded? So it's a reminder to go through those things. And it's so simple to just sit in your cockpit while you're waiting on takeoff and just go through them in your mind how how you're going to do that. Well, that's the important message in this story for other pilots. And you articulate it very well. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Chuck. And then, you know, the the other one is um, we always talk about under any kind of abnormal situation, first fly the airplane. And for most of us in the situations we've encountered, that means just mental focus. Don't allow yourself to get distracted. In your case, it became physically almost impossible to fly the airplane to what you call it, the limits of your human endurance. It stands as a great example of how to fly the airplane, even if you're at the verge of being burned alive, to fly your airplane and then to make a critical decision in the moment that you did to ram this airplane into the ground because you cannot fly it any longer. It was just incredible decision-making in a crisis moment in my mind, and it stands for something that the rest of us can reflect on and think, do we have it within us to react in that kind of way, in that kind of circumstance, and what kind of mental preparation do we need to take to make sure we do? You are absolutely correct. I talked about when the fire started, it was a moment of confusion and denial combined with pure terror. My focus became very narrow, fly the airplane, land, and get out. I didn't think about memory items. I didn't think about emergency checklists. I didn't think about cutting the mixture. Out of necessity, my focus became very narrow for survival. There's some great takeaways from your experience and what you're sharing with us. Chuck, thank you for doing it. Thank you very much, Richard. Just a horrific ordeal that Chuck survives through critical decisions that he made in the flash of a second. And it can give us all occasion to pause and think about, are we mentally prepared to make those kind of decisions in our cockpit if we had to? Fortunately, the chances are that none of us will ever have to make the kind of decisions that Chuck did. We can still incorporate the lessons learned that he gave us in his story 
and make sure our flying is even all that much more safe. We're happy to report that Chuck continues to develop and progress in his rehabilitation. He carved out time from that rehabilitation to share his story with us, and we're so thankful for his commitment to safety to do that. We wish Chuck all the best. Thank you for listening to another edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. If you're enjoying these podcasts, hit the subscribe button and recommend us to your friends. If you can, consider a donation at aopafoundation.org. That's aopafoundation.org. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thank you.